0: Hello listener, Manu here from Narvik. Before diving into today's awesome episode with Lars, Khalid, and Alex, I just wanted to briefly let you know about Starters Game Awards, and that's Game with a 3. As one of the first Web3 gaming award shows out there, I had the privilege of being a jury member for it, and I can already tell you that it's going to be quite an exciting one. The show airs on 15 December at 3 p.m. UTC, and there are 15 award categories, including the People's Choice Award, Most Anticipated Game, and of course, the coveted Game of the Year award. Plus, there will be various world premieres and unreleased gameplay announcements and trailers. On top of that, you too will have a chance to win some great prizes, including a gaming PC, a PS5, and much, much more. So make sure to tune into the live stream on 15 December, 3 p.m. UTC, to check out who will walk away with the one million dollar prize pool and the various winners, of course. Links are available in the show notes. With that. Let's get on with the episode.
1: Greetings, friends. Welcome to another session of the Crypto Corner brought to you by Navik. I'm your host, Alex DeKay. And today we'll be talking about a very fun topic that's quite well- relevant to many Web3 games, and that's of land economies. Selling it, buying it, building it, extracting from it, and how to potentially build an economy around it. And what the fuck happens if you've got some speculators in the mix and uh, sort of how they can potentially sabotage it. And so today, today I'm joined by Lars Duque, um, author of Land and Why It Matters, and Khalid El-Rumi, director of monetization and economy at Big Time Studios, and a previous game designer on Alluvium. Welcome to the Metacast, guys. Great to be here.
2: Thank you very much. It's yeah, pleasure to be here.
1: Awesome. And so it's, got, it's good to have you guys both on. Um, I have definitely had a ton of friends that have stayed up into absurd hours of the night um, in the U.S. to make sure they're primed and ready to... By the housing sale in Final Fantasy 14. Um, and last December, there was something absolutely crazy um, in terms of a land sale of like $4 million or something in Sandbox. And so we've talked ad nauseum about how speculative economies suck and web three equals Ponzi scheme and land speculation certainly might fall into this category. And I've been super keen to talk about virtual land and figure out whether or not a virtual land economy quote works. Um, but before we jump in, I would love to hear some intros from the both of you. And for fun, let's also add our favorite land before time dinosaur into our um, intros as an icebreaker. Khalid, why don't you uh, kick us off?
2: Yeah, sure. So maybe I'm going to start with uh, my favorite <laughs> dinosaur run before time. So I don't really remember the name, but honestly, as a small kid, like I watched this, this movie and I was really terrified from the T-Rexes. So I'm going to pick one of those. Uh, so let, let me tell you a bit about myself. So I've been working in games for around 10 years, mostly focusing on uh, free-to-play games, mid-core titles of mobile, uh, up until late of last year, where I joined the Luvium as a systems uh, designer. Uh, I stayed there for one year, and now I'm uh, working with Big Time as a director of economy and monetization. And we just uh, got to release our uh, details, or details about our economy just recently, uh, one week ago, to be specific. So yeah, it's really interesting awesome. times to work on Web3. Awesome, I mean, the T-Rexes. Yeah, T-Rexes.
1: Yeah, I'm a huge I'm a huge Chomper fan. So it's Chomper or go home. Um for me at least. Uh <laughs> so I'm with you on the T-Rexes, but maybe he's a little bit different. He's like a baby T-Rex. So yeah. a cute <laughs> a cute T-Rex. <laughs>
3: um Lars, how about you? Okay, I think it would probably be Sarah. She's not um she she's probably the least likable, but I do I do think that gives her the most potential for character growth and also I didn't realize the first time I watched it <laughs> that um I thought her name was Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, but it's actually C-E-R-A because she's a protoceratops. And I thought that was oh, a nice touch. So um, that is clever. So I, I, I learned the most from that one. Um, so, yeah, um, my background is that I originally got my degree in architecture a million years ago. Um, and I then went into game design as my actual career. I never so- sat for the architect's exam. And um I um, made some games um, on Steam and I collaborated with a bunch of other people on their games, you know, more on kind of the indie side of things. But then through my company, Level Up Labs, um, my co-founder worked for congregate.com. And so, you know, I absorbed a lot of free-to-play knowledge from um, my co-founder who wrote some seminal papers on uh, free-to-play monetization design. And um, over the course of events, we became consultants and advised on a lot of projects and Um, anyway, I started to kind of get a knack for economy and diving into the analysis of things. And this kind of culminated in this observation I had over the last kind of 30 years before web three, before free to play, dating back to MMOs and even before MMOs into the roots of muds and mushes. Um, land speculation is actually really old in video games and it's been a problem that's consistently been reproducing itself. So I did a series of interviews with, um, designers of these games, you know, um, economists that worked on EVE Online and uh, Raf Koster, um, who's worked on Star Wars Galaxies and Ultima Online and all these other games and um, just kind of like try to track down the roots of and, and patterns of this, these virtual housing crises. And then um, most recently, I wrote a book about the actual physical world economy. Um, my book land is a big deal just about, um, the actual physical housing crisis and, you know, some things we might be able to do about it. So that's kind of how I, I kind of got tied up in these sorts of conversations. Of course, for the last year, I've been working for Novic, um, you know, doing deconstructions of web three games. And so I applied that kind of background knowledge of virtual housing crises and analyzing games like Axie Infinity, the sandbox, Decentraland, so on and so forth.
1: Awesome. Well, that's a perfect transition to, I guess, where I want to start, because the first thing I want to talk about is what is land and what role it plays in the real world. Um, and so I've been so inundated recently by the Lensa AI uh, generative images and people chatting with ChatGPT like, all the time. And so I decided that in the theme of this week, I would also ask ChatGPT what land is. And ChatGPT crushed it, I got to say. ChatGPT told me that Land is a natural resource that refers to the solid surface of the earth. It includes both the surface of the ground as well as vegetation, structures, and other natural or man-made features that are present on the surface. Land is a valuable resource that is used for a variety of purposes, including agriculture, housing, and industry. So... Hell yeah, ChatGPT, um, backbone of the real estate industry. I'm taking a real estate investment course next semester, um, so I'm ready to activate my inner REIT trading. And so, I guess, like Lars' first question to you, uh, what do you think of ChatGPT's assessment? Is Chat P- is ChatGPT with it when it comes to the description of land? Yeah,
3: it's certainly an accurate description of, of 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 natural land, right? But um, when we talk about economic land, we mean something a little bit more than just physical dirt, right? We, we generally mean is locations, right? And real estate agents kind of give it away, right? What are the three most important rules of real estate? Location, 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 right? And so you can have locations in places that don't feel like natural land. Like you can have locations in space, right? In orbital real estate, there's a fixed amount of satellites you can put into low earth orbit before they start to collide with each other. Um, there is a fixed amount of... Um, locations in certain possibility spaces. Like there's only so many two-letter domain names using the 26 characters of the English alphabet, right? And those are all squatted by speculators, I will guarantee you. Um, There's, um, and so there's other kinds of land-like assets, we'll say. You know, in terms of natural land, sometimes like nat- non-renewable resource deposits like oil and gold are sometimes lumped under land. The difference is you can't, generally speaking, use up natural land, but you can use up nat- depletable natural resources. But we go into the virtual world and the basis of my whole theory is that um, land, even in the virtual world, you can make your own rules, right? You can call things whatever you want, Um But just because you call something land in your video game doesn't necessarily mean it's a land-like asset. It's a land-like asset economically if it has three properties. And those three properties are that it's scarce, it's necessary for production, and it obtains value based off its location in some kind of geography, right? Whether that's a Euclidean geography like we have in the real world or some other kind of network, right? Um, And so, the stronger those three features are, basically, my thesis is the more it attracts speculation. And the weaker any of those three properties is, the less speculation it has. For instance, Decentraland has perfect point-to-point teleportation, and this decreases the locational value of any given lo- property. But other places where you have weaker lo- teleportation and you have to traverse land that increases the locational value, or you know, the kind of the kind of um, funneling, like. You know, you'd, you'd rather be right next to someone because it doesn't take you three hours to traverse the map sort of deal. Anyway, that that's kind of my argu- my thesis about the difference between economic land and, and natural land. Natural land is a kind of economic land, but there are other kinds.
1: Got it. So chat GPT crushed it on the natural land but did not mention, I'll ask it next, actually, after this podcast is over, what he thinks about economic land. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I guess it sounds like I'm, what I'm pulling from you is that there's a couple of components of land that um, I should be looking at to assess its like goodness, right? Um, you know, One is location. Two might be like the natural ores that are present inside the land, the resources that I can extract from it, right? Potentially the improvements that have been built upon it, um, whether that could be a house or a farm, um, and, and, and things like that. Right. And so you have this kind of like, you know, in the real world, there are certain rules and structures that govern and regulate land. Right. And I was wondering whether or not maybe you could share some of those before we kind of jump into talking about the differences between land that's designed in the virtual world, which Khalid can probably share a little bit more about, but sort of like in the, in IRL, right? Like what are some of the big financial rules and regulations that govern actual land that then could potentially be relevant for virtual land. But let's keep being this in the physical in the physical territory first.
3: Right. So if we start with one of the biggest ones is, is zoning regulations, right? Um, so one thing to keep in mind in the real world, mineral rights, although naturally they're part of the land, are often um, sold separately in the United States at least. When you buy mm-hmm. a house, the mineral rights have probably already been separately sold. So you don't necessarily, like if there's oil underneath your house, someone might have free reign to come and pump it without compensating you because they already own the mineral rights. So that's something to look out for. Um, Then there's the air rights, like your right to build upwards, right? Into three-dimensional space. Um, And zoning is a big restriction on this in a lot of places. Like, have you ever wondered why skyscrapers in the US aren't just like straight up? Why they have this like tapered kind of approach as they go up? That's actually them building out to the legal envelope of the zoning. Like there's this rule for like you go up this far, then you got to set back. Then you got to set back again. And so any buildings that are going straight up vertically, usually you'll notice they're not using most of their plot because these air rights can kind of be traded. And so a lot of our built environment is directly influenced by the regulatory um, zoning restrictions that we have. Um, and I could go into a whole detail of it, but I would just recommend people read arbitrary lines by, um, M Nolan Gray. He's a city planner. He's talked about this whole history of where American zoning came from. And and the basic thesis is that it's generally bad and restricts the supply of our housing and directly contributes to the housing crisis. But, um, in the real world, like what you are allowed to do with land, um, massively influences its value. Right. And so you can see this, for example, um, with people holding on to what look like very low value plots, but then they're lobbying mm. the city to upzone them. And the minute it gets mm. upzone, the price magically goes up, right? Right, and sure. then they sell it off and they obtain a windfall profit.
1: Sure, sure, okay, gotcha. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I think, like, yep. In the way that I'm seeing that mapping now to our you know discussion about land in the virtual world is that like that's what a game designer would choose. What rules there are that are set in that land, and so maybe let's like shift to that a little bit, right? Um, we could probably spend multiple hours talking about real world land. Um, it's right. obviously a very deep topic uh, and very prevalent, and lots of people have done plenty, a plethora of academic studies. And obviously, there's the real world economy that rotates around land's biggest asset class. Um, but you know, this is a gaming podcast, so you know how land is manifesting itself in the digital world. You know, I pulled a, a little clip from Sandbox, which is our favorite Web three land. Um, I guess, or a notorious Web3 land uh, economy, right? And it says, uh, Land is a digital piece of real estate in the sandbox metaverse. Game designers use land to build digital experiences, such as games or dioramas, and also populate it with assets. Multiple lands can be combined to form an estate, and a special estate um, that's owned by more than one person is called a district. And so a variety of other games, like alluvium, Crypto Unicorns, and whatever other side will become, um also use LAN as the cornerstone of their game design as either a semi-variable soft token or an NFT. And so me, Khalid, maybe you can sort of jump in here from your experience at Alluvium and Big Time. You know, what are the ways you are thinking about using LAN to create a player experience and secondarily drive an economy?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. So so let me tell you just first, not not from a like a standpoint of me being part of any company, like me as as a system designer because my personal opinion is how we would utilize virtual lands. is the way I would look at it as we have uh, basically a virtual good that is limited in supply that may have certain functions in a game. And we would cover it or use the land cover on it because that's how we could easily convey to the users that this is something that is scarce and this is something that you could potentially uh, get some value from. So it's it's, it's we, we don't look at it as really as a land. Land is just a way to convey the message easily. Like that, that's that's how I look at it from a pure systematic point of view.
1: Um, and so I guess in in that regard, right? What controls have you installed centrally to control this? I guess, um, finite asset uh,
2: or digital yeah. virtual good. Yeah, sure. So I, I could give you just two examples. Okay. So. Uh, in, in the case of Illuvium, where the land is actually not the main part of the gameplay. So Illuvium, uh, the, the land in Illuvium is just like a small part of the gameplay, where it's there for a specific type of players who are looking to benefit or, or get some value uh, from the game if it became very popular. Okay, But the actual game is played outside the land and it's not required by most of the players. So in this case, land being scarce does not harm the user experience at all. However, if you take a game that is, the more land you have, the more experiences you have for the user, here is where if you implement scarcity, you might really affect the, 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 the end user experience, and it could end up harming the game. So, you know, virtual land is not like treated across the board 100% the same. It really depends on the actual rules that you put in or the game design or the systems that are set in place and how the player will, will, will interact with these systems. Got
1: it. Um, and so if the, let's just say, like the land is maybe a main or central part of the game, or it's not, right? Uh, let's just maybe take, you know, in olivium. it sounds like it's kind of like a side a side um, agenda, right? Um. But in some games, it's actually like a very, very big deal, such that if you didn't have a plot of land, you wouldn't be able to build anything at all, right? The land is the cornerstone of the actual game itself. And so how would if you, as a, from the system designer perspective, and maybe obviously Lars, feel free to jump in. How would I think about having a finite amount of plots of land or having a infinitely expandable surface, right? Because unlike the real world, I can just print more land. And, um, but, but you just told me that, you know, the, 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 the speculation and the finiteness is what makes it valuable. So how do I kind of, as a, as a game designer, how would I, how should I think about that?
2: The way you look at it is it depends on the systems that are set in place. Like again, we shouldn't look at it as is this a land or not a land. We should look at it as this system behaves in such way. Does it benefit the ecosystem if it's finite or not finite? Like that's basically what I wanted to say. So, Lars, you, you could, yeah, go ahead. Right,
3: I agree. You know, so my understanding of alluvium is that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that land can help you generate fuel, but you can get fuel in other ways. It's not like only the landowners um, create this resource, and so when I talked about like my, my three rules, right? Scarce and supply, necessary for production and obtains value from location. So the fact that you can get whatever resource or whatever benefit, um, alluvium land generates from somewhere else makes it less necessary for production. Right. And so this makes it a much weaker land like asset. And so as he's saying, land is used mostly as a theme, right? And so this reduces the speculative value of alluvium land, if my understanding is correct. Um, and the basic point there is, is that in the real world, Everything you do requires land. Like I say, you can't eat, sleep, work, or poop without access to a location to do those things. And um, in video games, we can create different rules, right? You can opt out of necessarily, like you can either have common land to do any of the things you need to do and then land that's owned only provides, like like it provides some kind of special benefit. Like in most of the traditional MMOs, the virtual housing crises didn't destroy those games. Like Ultima Online still going on like 20, 25. How old am I? 30? I don't know. Like 25 years later, it feels like, you know, Ultima Online still going on and it still has a housing crisis, but the game isn't broken because housing's only one sector of the game. It's not fundamental to the game. And so the more necessary you make the land to do anything in the game for any progression, the more it, the more it gatekeeps the more all those benefits accrue to the people who have access to this thing that everybody needs. But if it only provides a benefit and land is mostly used as a theme, you don't really have necessary. you don't even necessarily have a problem or a huge problem. Right. And so um, that's kind of why I like to think of, and I agree with Khaled that it's not so much land or not land. It's like in my policy paper about land in, in virtual worlds, I describe it as a sliding scale, right. Of how, of how landy the land is in economic terms. And when it's more, when it when it's, when it's weaker, you know, you have less problems. Like in my deconstruction of um, Decentraland for Novik, I talked about how Decentraland seems like it has really classic land parcels, but because of the teleportation and other aspects, the locational values decreased a lot. And that makes it so that you saw more speculation in the sandbox and Axie Infinity based off of the expectations they had set forth than you did in Decentraland. And um, so those observations have held consistent, at least in the things I've looked at. But you know, I'd, I'd be more than welcome to hear people who found 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 things that kind of break my expectations. But so far, I don't see enormous concerns with alluviums, the alluviums land land as designed, based on my understanding of it.
1: Got it. And and, and I guess is the goal is the goal to one hundred entire one hundred percent reduce that speculation, right? Are you saying that that would be potentially damaging? Let's just say you had a land economy that kind of rotates as finite asset class. It's like you can definitely get around and get by without having land. And so is it really that big of a deal that there is land speculation at all in your game?
3: Right, right? well, I mean, if you want to make a game where the theme is like cutthroat real estate you know, land grabs, you know, maybe some people think that's fun, but you should just be upfront about that, right? And so like my point is, is that a lot of people don't realize the kind of dynamics you're in for. They imagine a world where it's like, oh, people buy land and then they build stuff on it and they build up this community and like everybody wins. But in practice, what happens is that when land becomes... When when truly land-like assets, like the strongest ones where all three principles hold, they become an investment for for essentially absentee landlords who lease them out to the actual builders and extract value from the builders. And so the thing is a lot of these classic worlds like the Sandbox and um, Axie Infinity's land as it was pitched and Yuga Labs' thing as it was pitched is they really want to be UGC platforms, user-generated content platforms like Roblox. And um, or Minecraft or Fortnite or whatever, or, or VR chat. Um, and they're not set up in a way that actually rewards building. It doesn't reward. It doesn't allocate the land to the most creative people. It allocates land to whoever got there first. And then that person just passively collects rent from the actual builders who come in later. And I don't think that's a good recipe for building a successful user-generated content platform. You notice land in Roblox is free. And so, I mean, if you want to use a scarce asset that has a physical location on the map somewhere as part of your mix, I don't think that's necessarily a problem. But if you make it the very centerpiece of everything your project is about and then pitch it based off of this flurry of creativity that's going to come, just empirically, we haven't seen that succeed.
1: Hmm. Hmm. And so let's talk about the rent thing. I pulled rent out of there pretty quickly. Uh how if I were to build a land economy, right? Let's talk a little bit now from the perspective of the developer, right? How do I make money from my land? Right. IRL, you know, I see taxes and rent. And those are like the two main ways. You can have a short-term lease, a long-term lease. You could pay taxes on the land, you can pay taxes on the improvements. Um should people be paying? And so I guess maybe from the developer side at Alluvium, like how did you sell the land? Um, did you sell it as one piece, and then there was nothing kind of attached to it, or was it sort of, was there actually like imbued financial economic levers over time to control potentially maybe some of the things that Lars is talking about in terms of um, making sure it's not getting hogged by an investor who's just squatting on the land, for example?
2: Yeah. So I actually could could tell you from two point of view so from alluvium point of view and from big time point of view so in big time we also have our equivalent of land which are spaces. So in alluvium the, the main purpose or the economic value that you could get from land is is producing fuel and fuel you could you could sell it in, in liquidity pools and whatnot and that's how you make your money. however in, in, in big time once you have a space now you're able to craft cosmetic NFTs and that's how you get your value from the, from it basically. you craft cosmetic NFTs and you sell it to end users who don't have spaces who want these cosmetic NFTs. Uh, and actually, renting is a, is a mechanic that is, like I would say that almost most of the time that we want to put it in because we would have a class of users who don't want to play the game or who don't have time to play the game or either they have tons of these lands and they, they cannot physically manage all of these lands. So instead of them hoarding everything and just sitting, not doing anything in our game, you know, getting harmed from that, we need to integrate a system where it would benefit us where these nfts or or lands are are, are actually getting utilized, and at the same time they are rewarding whoever is is, is holding to all of these lands so renting is there just to solve this problem of speculator buying things, hoarding them, and not even enabling the economy with them so it, it becomes like a a must to avoid these situations where someone hoarding everything and and, and not enabling the economy.
3: All right. That actually dovetails with the recommendation I make in my policy paper that the government, in this case the developer, lease out your 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 land on short term leases at market rates. Right. And that tends to solve the speculative problem. Like if you absolutely have to have scarce locational based resources that, you know, gatekeep some feature, just lease them out at market rates and that way um, that tends to allocate things most efficiently that's what we see in the real world economies and there's been a um, there's been some experiments in some games to kind of allocate things on this basis that way the person who wants it the most and has an idea of something productive to do with it will hold on to it but someone who's just like i want to hold abc.com for 30 years until someone pays me 10 million dollars will not want to pay you know 2000 dollars a year or whatever to hold on to such a valuable URL right. Another proposal that's been put out from the crypto world is Vitalik Buterin. He wrote a, um, a proposal for bid-based uh, domain value allocations um, in um, for for the Ethereum name name service, and he talked about how these virtual kinds of virtual land right that obtain value you know, in this space, you know, you can, it's not exactly like a leasing system, but it's it's similar to it where it's able to, you know, get signals from the market. And so like the holding cost increases as there's more demand for the thing. So that someone who's holding it just to wait for someone else just gives it up, right? And then it gets put to use. And then that can actually bring prices down in the long run because it's not just scalpers driving the price up. It's based off of actual use, um, which also helps you get less of a frothy price you know, and, and so like you can you can have like a saner price that represents what people are actually valuing your, your project for to, to actually use the project, you know, and actually generate value. And then again, you know, what he talks about is like cosmetics. Cosmetics are a wonderful monetization thing in a lot of these games because they're not necessarily gatekeeping access to the game itself, but they're a very socially important aspect of free to play monetization, you know. It's like I can play Fall Guys and look like a noob wearing nothing but the free costumes all the time and still be the best player in the game. But if I want to look cool, then I might want to drop a 100 bucks, right? You know? And so I, I think there's some, 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 some fair ways to do this that don't... Um, because one of the problems is you do not want to cut off access to your own growth. You don't want to keep your own users out um, just because you want to reward the first 50 people To um, jump on some assets
1: early on. Mm -hmm. And so, in in that, right, I heard about basically a supply demand kind of pricing orientation, right? We talked about leases. If I wanted to lease and execute a short term lease or a long term lease to someone to make sure that they aren't holding onto the land, right? We just talked about, oh, I wouldn't want to hold the domain name abc.com or abc.url. Because of, I wouldn't want to incur the cost that it takes that accumulate over the 30 years. How should I know? How do I know how much to charge for a short term lease in my land economy? Right. Right. Like, actually, what's the mathematical equation that I set up to actually determine that? And, you know, Khalid, you talked a lot about that role specking right? Like in Web3 games, that is one of the biggest. Ways people are trying to solve the nature of the speculative economy, to basically like offset and say like, "Hey, the speculators will be over here, these are the farmers, these are the players, and then everything will kind of balance out versus the Axie problem, which was like, everybody wants to be an earner. And if you have this diverse role case, you actually maybe balance and set out the economy because some people's gains and losses are offset in different places. But you know so it sounds like you guys are actually implementing a lease, um, but how do I know how much to pay? Or charge? Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. So for us, actually, it's it's very, very complex. Uh, like I'm talking about big time, compared to Illuvium. Illuvium it was a, a almost like a straightforward equation. You could know exactly what is the output. You can forecast prices, and then you could you could set something up. But in big time, it's a bit different because once you have a a space, now you can start crafting cosmetics. And it's like not a linear process. There are multiple recipes. There is multiple ways that you could be lucky or, or unlucky and things like that. So it's very hard to predict. We're honestly depending on, on the market to figure this out, honestly. Uh, it's, it's very hard to put uh, an equation or to solve it via an equation. I think there will be some price discovery. Uh, we're also to add more complexity to it. We're actually allowing you to package uh or like, this is what we're thinking about doing. So we're, we're thinking about packaging multiple NFTs together. So I could have a space and then I could have add some decorations to it and I could have some, some little factories there and I would rent it out. So also if you want to put your, your uh, own touch to it, make it look nicer, give it a theme, you could also do that. You know, so price discovery via the market, I, I think is, is where we're looking, uh, to do honestly. It's very hard to, <laughs> to put a number on that.
3: Well, that's actually what, what I recommend, actually. So it's like the beauty of leases. In, in the real world, I generally recommend a land value tax, which is a tax that is a tax on the ground rent of land, but excludes the value of buildings. And this is just a practical compromise with the way the real world is. In a world where you're the government and you create everything, you can just do short term leases. Um, and the reason that's advantageous in the digital world is that if there's any improvements If someone, you know, loses the next lease, you just stick the improvements in their pocket and move them anywhere. You can't move a house in real life. And the other thing with leases is just the accurate, the correct price for the short-term lease is whatever the market will bear, right? Generally, the mechanism to discover this that I recommend is what's called a Vickrey auction. And this is different from a normal auction where basically um, you have an auction and everyone says it's silent, it's sealed. No one can see anyone else's bid. And then the highest bid wins. The highest bidder wins, but they ha- they pay the second highest bidded price. And there's a reason behind this. Basically, it makes it so that you don't have to like game the system. Most auctions are designed to actually artificially inflate the price as high as possible. But a Vickrey auction is designed to like get the highest price someone's actually like rationally willing to pay. And um, because you're trying to do price discovery rather than just to like juice, you know, the sale of your random antique. And so I generally recommend. Um, um market-based leases using a vickrey auction method and then um, you know you just have your short-term leases and the market will tell you what the value of this particular location is worth Um, and then if you're trying to do the whole play to earn thing what you can do is in real life we have this you know policy called a citizen's dividend or universal basic income what you can do is that rather than the rents being captured by private actors who got there first you can capture those as the government and then in real life you would use this like fund schools and whatever um, or you could give it away as a dividend to your citizens. In a video game, you know, it's like y- y- your, your little virtual dollars are not going to help you pay your employees necessarily, um, unless they're like cryptocurrency. So you could use that as some income for yourself. But you could additionally um, distribute at least some portion of that to your most engaged players as kind of a way to do play to earn sustainably. You know, um, basically, it's like you guys all cre- collectively created this entire economy to be valuable. So you have to pay rent. so so people who really, really want to access the most high value locations will basically pay rent to the government for that privilege and that will reduce speculation and ensure it gets allocated efficiently. And then we can reallocate that money um, or at least a portion of it to you know people who are making the ecosystem more valuable. Um, the trick then is is like you know civil attacks and people signing up just to get you know a free lunch, you know, but you know that is that is, that is, that is a challenge you're facing anyway. Right. Um, and I, I, would, I would probably do that more modestly, but rather like trying to, like I'm not necessarily a fan of plate earn in general, but if you're going to do it, it makes more sense to do it on that model than to just give all of the rents straight to the the 10 people who bought all the land first, because it will tend to also concentrate in fewer and fewer hands over time. And this is a way to create, make sure it's more widely distributed and, and more effective. So basically the bottom line is I agree with Khalid that you want, you want the market to figure it out um, because otherwise you're trying to, yeah, you you'll have weird distortions, and you'll just create a lot of work for yourself.
1: Sure, and if the market's supposed to figure it out, right? We 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 love. Um the uh, the idea that uh, fair prices are set by open and equal uh, markets. Am um, I have a developer, right? And I need to build a land economy, and I'm staffing up positions to actually determine what the fair price is. Sort of who should I be having like on my central systems design and economic team in order to design a system that figures it out? Um, are we relying on mostly like open source tools and such that oh we see that this um, that on Sea, this plot of land is trading at X, Y, Z, and whether or not, are there any kind of installation metrics that I should be putting in my game to make sure that the asset values don't ever go above a certain amount because of any reason, right? You know, the 4 million plot of land seems, you know, potentially uh, exorbitant, um, but, you know, but it sounds like there's a buyer that's out there that's willing to pay that, but I think, like, are there ways that you can install price and floor ceilings. um, Maybe talk about your experiences kind of managing that land economy.
2: Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So this is one of the things that is an added layer of complexity because of Web3. So in free-to-play, we used to care about retention and monetization, and that's it. Here, we need to care about retention, monetization, and, and, and maintaining the prices of all our NFT assets, you know, it's not something necessary, but it's something to, to maintain the goodwill between you and, and, and the, the initial uh, buyers of your NFTs. Uh, it's funny that, that, that you said this because we actually are, are working on a system uh, similar to that, which is uh, in big time, we have a token that we're going to create that is called time. And to generate it, you need to have an hourglass. And once you have an hourglass, you can play the game and start generating time token. So a system that we implemented there is that once you play with the hourglass, it will be depleted. Now you need to recharge it. To recharge it, you need to pay premium currency. So once you pay the premium currency, which is bought from us, now you can start generating tokens. So we, we, we introduced an, an element that should add some stability somewhat and would act as a soft floor. To the token so whenever the token price goes down below the recharge cost then theoretically it doesn't make sense for me to recharge the hourglass. Suddenly what happens is that the supply of time token should decrease and the price should go up and now it makes sense for me to recharge it and start farming, farming to farming it again. So we're trying to look at systems like this to add some stability into certain elements of the economy and these would act as our levers going forward uh so yeah, like these are the type of system this is where we're, we're thinking uh, in terms of, of controlling these these prices.
3: Yeah, and just to jump in, like that four million dollar price in sandbox was was not an accident. like it, it might have taken them by surprise that it went that high, but they were very intentionally trying to drive prices up like that. And they typically do that through setting very clear expectations. like there will never be more than this that you should buy these if you want to get rich because you are going to be able to, extract value from the builders who are to come and this is going to be a big deal and you're going to be next to snoop dog and a bunch of people are going to want to visit him and all of that and we've intentionally gimped teleportation so that they're going to have to tra- have to travel across your plot of land and what you see happen after they've made all those promises is in reality sets in nobody's really showing up and then they start doing what i call land dilution where they start going back on every promise except scarcity and hope people don't notice too much Things like, okay, land will still be scarce, but we'll, we'll let some other people get resources this other way. Or, oh, we'll add a little bit more transportation, teleportation, and, and other things to basically like paint themselves out of the corner they've painted themselves in while still promising the scarcity thing, which is what everyone like focuses on. And what's happened with Axie and 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 some of these other games is like as soon as they do that and announce these changes, they get a landowner revolt. Because it's like, hey, I paid $4 million for this under these expectations, and now you're changing the system? Of course they're upset. Right. And so I think it's very good with like you can have whatever system you want to kind of put dampening effects in. And so like what Khalid is talking about here with the hourglasses and stuff is it's essentially, you know, like whatever land is gatekeeping, if there's some other way to do it and there's some like kind of like baseline level of it, you know, that's always going to like serve as a soft price floor for your asset. And so the thing to keep in mind is is that to make sure that whatever changes you have like that, you tell people about that very clearly up front because what Sandbox was doing was very intentionally trying to drive the price up. And um, you sometimes see this in the real world where pundits can't decide if high or low home prices is a good thing or a bad thing. They're like, well, the housing market is cooling off, which is bad news because now pro- house prices are going down and people who have high home values, you know, but then maybe some people will be able to afford a house. Is that good, Stan? I can't decide. you know? are like the housing market is is zooming. It's so good. All the prices are super high. You know, nobody will ever be able to afford to move out <laughs> of their parents' basement. You know, aren't we glad? Um, so, so like, I think, you know, a lot of these things are set by the expectations of the asset. That's why you're able to sell $4 million worth of land before the land can really do anything. And so I think, like, with the various measures Khalid is talking about, you know, in their case, they're making it very clear what all these mechanisms are going to be up front. Or, I mean, I haven't read the whole paper, but I'm, you know, going on good faith that it's all there. You know, um, and, and so, like, the... Expectations drive prices. Like the minute you announce a change to your system, you'll see the prices move even before you even implement them. Hmm.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's just like announcing earnings uh, or potential earnings or an AOP or an annual operating plan. Uh, And it sounds like the same thing. It's just with feature changes, maybe in, in the game itself, you know, changing the timing on the hourglass or changing how much of time it takes to fill it up. Right. Um, but I guess maybe like sort of, it sounds like there's a lot of things, there's a lot of like do's and don'ts I'm pulling out of this conversation, right? Like potentially don't have your land be finite. And if it is finite, you have to give people a way to access the gameplay benefits that would come from the finite land some some, some other way, right? Yeah. Don't try and change the rules of your land like 24-7 and don't take back sort of like what you promised to your consumers, Um what are some of like the big of the big land projects that we've seen so far? Right, Decentraland, Sandbox, Alluvium, Crypto Unicorns. I think they basically it's more of a farming and uh, resource gathering rather than like a real estate project. Um, but again, like there's a lots of depth, a lot of depth to these economies, and it's you know obviously all hard to keep track of. What are some of the big like? uh-oh mistakes that some of the com- these companies have made, in your guys' opinion, um, and how can a new developer that is building a land economy learn from those moving forward? Uh,
2: yes, yeah, so I, I could just tell you something that is uh, one of the most obvious points, which is, uh, to play the game, you need, you need to have a land. I mean, this is something that we've seen very, very common, and it's one of the most devastating things that a developer could do to their game, uh, assuming they want to grow their user base. Uh beside that, like generally uh, for Web3 games is also trying to build the game uh, and assuming that oh, your entire audience is going to come from Web3 native players who are expecting to make money out of the ecosystem. You know, and then it ends up being everyone who puts a dollar in is expecting to get two dollars back. And that's from the get-go is like it's not sustainable. Uh, I think going forward... Hopefully, we're gonna see games where it would attract uh, regular type of players, or who, in, who are in it to uh, get the experience, so not only just to make money. And I think the way we should look at it is: how could we plus one the experience from the current free-to-play games? You know, we shouldn't come and try to make something that is revolutionary. I mean, it could work, but I think it's a long shot. I think we should look at the current free-to-play games, and how could we plus one that experience for the player. And that's the key. And that should be uh, uh, our guideline going forward for for any decision that that you're trying to do in in, in games or Web3 games or or any in that regard, to to be honest.
3: Yeah, I I mean, I agree with Khalid. And then another thing I would add is also a major problem a lot of Web3 games come from is... um, you know, Khalid has this background in traditional game design. Um, a lot of other companies, uh, they don't have a Khalid on staff. They didn't actually hire a lot of game designers. They hired a lot of people from finance who wrote a white paper and then, you know, kind of barreled down the wall. Um, and so one thing I've, I've noticed a lot is a lot of like, one of the challenges with Web3 game design is that you cast all these design decisions in concrete early on. And anyone who spent any time in game development knows how drastically your final game can look from your first shipped version. You know, you need to make changes in response to players. Um, But the problem is when you've cast them in concrete first on the blockchain and then in the financial expectations of your initial players slash investors, then it becomes very difficult to pivot to a project without breaking the project immediately and causing it to fail. Right. And so I think being like, don't make a million promises up front. People make those promises because then they can make a lot of money off of a presale, right? And um, so I would be very cautious about that. And one more thing I would like to just like kind of zoom into real quick is the notion of scarcity is actually really more complicated than people realize when it comes to locations, right? Because like, there's this big notion in video games, it's like, well, we, we're we not confined to the virtual world, to, to, the, to the laws of physics, why can't we just print more land for everything. And so Hmm. one of the things that's really interesting is that Ultima Online has essentially infinite land. So how can it still have a housing crisis 25 years later? Well, it's because of what we call urban agglomeration effects. And what all this means is that you wanna be, you wanna hang out with your friends, right? You don't want to hang out in the middle of the Nevada desert. You wanna be in New York City, or if New York City is not your style, maybe a small town, but like a small town where all your friends are, right? And so the most popular server is always going to be the one with the biggest housing crisis. And when people are like, well, why don't you just play on the least populated server? The answer is going to be because it's boring and it's no fun because there's no players there. And so I have no demand to be there. So even if you have infinite you know, lands, the point is that locations are non-fungible. And that's what we mean when land is scarce. So even if you're printing infinite land, um, if, if all land does is gatekeep access to a resource, then land is fungible. But if land gatekeeps access to, say, social experiences, which is what happens when you model like towns and cities, then land is non-fungible and it gatekeeps access to your friends, to other people, um, to thriving markets and, and, and dungeon opportunities and stuff, right? You know, And that is one thing that you should be really careful about. Is like, like uh, Raph Koster was telling me that in Star Wars Galaxies, you had phenomena where people could build like player built cities and people would build them on top of dungeons in order to basically put a toll booth around the dungeon. You know, the dungeon was like public land, um, but now like people would like gatekeep it and stuff like that. And so that's just another thing to watch out for is, is that locations are non-fungible.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah, I was about to say, have there been any land economies that are maybe not, we talked about this role of the government, the game designer or the game developer centrally controlling and maybe taxing whenever, whichever way or setting a short-term lease by a Vickery auction, et cetera, but have there been any economies or maybe, or maybe what do you guys think about this in the sense that maybe people kind of just... Um, Uh, attack one another and take over the land and set their own rules, right? So kind of doing what you had just said in Star Wars Galaxy where they're like, okay, me and my group of clan friends have decided that this dungeon is very valuable to us. So therefore we have built a city around it with walls. And now we will charge a toll to anybody that would like to run this dungeon. Um, And we as a faction, a clan will make and potentially in a Web3 environment an actual token that's of, of real world value to them for doing those types of things what is your kind of um initial reaction to that does that make the game fun does that make the game too realistic to be fun um i guess uh i don't know i just that's just well, yeah popped that, into that, my that, mind that, right
3: that that's i i talk about that kind of allocation system called blood taxes um and this is how animals allocate land in the natural world the difference between that and the standard system is in the standard system the government has a monopoly on violence so you can buy land and then the police will come and chase someone off if they try to take your land. But in the natural world, it's just nature, red and tooth and claw. It's just you, right? And it's brutal and it's scary and it's EVE Online. It's the modern incarnation of EVE Online in null sec <laughs> right. regions, null security regions. This is how turf is allocated. And it's brutal, it's just endless gang wars. Some people find that endlessly fun, but it does have a kind of brutal efficiency allocation There's in a total perfect blood taxes system, basically like land is allocated by spending blood and there's no security, there's no safety, but there's a lot of efficiency, right? Because if you're a fearsome creature, you're going to go after the best land that you can credibly defend, right? And you're going to very quickly naturally find your niche. You're not going to seek out land that is really, really valuable, but is so valuable that it will attract monsters scarier than you. So you will find the most valuable hill that is not worth attacking for more scary monsters because they're going to go after an even more valuable place. So you'll find your niche in the ecosystem. You will never get a moment's sleep. You will be terrified for your entire existence, but efficiency will will quickly uh, arise. And Reddit slash r slash place, if you've played that little mini game, um, I'll describe it for the audience. It started as an April Fool's joke, and it's a Reddit mini game where people just There's this big mural, it's made out of pixels, and every Reddit user every five minutes can place one pixel in like 12 colors. That's it, that's the only rule. And this is very much like blood taxes, although here it's attention. And so people make all these huge murals. It's not like you claim a bunch of land and it's yours, and the government of Reddit enforces that and you can do whatever, because then you would get a very boring mural very quickly. Instead, Anyone can graffiti anything as long as they're willing to place their pixel every five minutes. And so you had all kinds of weird emergent behavior arise. And it was, first of all, it was kind of like stressful. You had to have nothing else you were doing that weekend. But you had things like, okay, me and my group are over here and we're trying to like paint our little mural. And then, um, uh uh-oh, the Swedish flag is marching towards us. And so it's like it's taking over our little buffer state. Of of like so there was like, I think there was like a pride flag like next to us and the Swedes were like encroaching on it not ideologically just because Sweden eats everything and so like people from our group were like rebuilding the pride flag because it's like if they go down we're next we need to protect our buffer state oh they got eliminated okay we can reallocate some land here as like a refugee state and then like we're we, we've got our own allies the neoliberals are beneath us they're helping us um, but then like we want to like write our little slogan in a higher font. And we're coordinating in our Discord channel, but we're getting we're getting friendly fire from somewhere that erases it to the old version. So we're like, oh, are our allies like not realizing we changed what we're trying to build? We send diplomats to their Discord. They're like, uh, no, that's not coming from us. And so you can check each pixel and see who's drawing it. It's coming from the furries. We're like, we don't even have diplomatic relations with the furries. And we talk to them. <laughs> it's like, what are you guys doing? You're giving us friendly fire. We're trying to do this now. They're like, oh, oh, that's cool. They're like, what what are you even doing here? They're like, well, we have to defend you or the Swedish will eat us next. And all of those rules, all of those interactions are totally emergent that just come from any Reddit user can place one pixel every five minutes, right? And it's incredibly stressful and it's not a game for everyone. But that is a system I call blood taxes where you just allocate land by combat and it goes to whoever is able to credibly defend that territory. Um, And
1: that's how Eve Eve allocates space in in, in nullsec zones. Sure. Yeah, I'm also just picturing myself in Civ, like, going after that military victory. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to get my city-states, I'm going to send my diplomat to the city-state, and then the city-state and I will raise uh, Prussia to the ground, like, (laughs) and then we'll (laughs) burn all the farms, and we'll pillage, and we'll destroy all the buildings, and then we'll rebuild, um, which is just, uh, you know, it's an interesting Oh, there's ahead. a
3: lot of there's a lot of negative externalities to that system, right? There's a, there's a lot of like it, it's like incredibly allocates land to like the optimal fiercest monster for each hill, but it also there's a lot of casualties
1: left on 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 the ground. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, potentially not for the it's not a game for the faint of heart, right? right. But it is a it is a game that potentially could revolve around land as territory being that center pin, um, and being the thing that is um. Well, in, in reality, we're like oriented the centerpiece of the progression loop and having people really vie for it because they get some sort of like extreme benefit, whether or not that's right. from experience, resources, um, just even simply cachet. Like I live in the best house, um, which I'm sure is incredibly important to people. It's important to people in Final Fantasy fourteen. So it would assume that it's important to, to lots of others. Um and I guess, like, maybe, like, uh, one, I guess maybe one final question as we're coming up to, to time, right? Uh, if there were an economy right now, uh, that you think would benefit from in, installing a land-based economy as well. And I think the other idea is that, like, land as an economy is just another source of potential revenue, right? And in the Web3 environment, um, where you're actually giving up a lot of, a, a lot of value, to your players, and versus controlling it centrally, having more diversified having a diversified asset class could actually be like quite helpful. Um, what games do you think could benefit from having land economies that are either Web three or Web two right now, and and kind of why?
3: So I'm gonna actually like kind of twist the question and say that a lot of games wind up with land economies even if they don't intend to, and that's because as I said, locations are non fungible. So if you have a game that has some sense of location. And there's some value in controlling a location. Even if you didn't intend for locations to be like owned, they can still be controlled. Right. Mm. You know what I mean? And so like in, in, like, like in the real world, you have this phenomenon of like public national parks that private landowners have bought up all the land around it. And you're not allowed to trespass on their land. So now they basically own the national park. And you have weird things like people like stepping over the corner of a parcel so they never step put in the private land and there's a whole dispute. And you see these kind of things happening in games like in in Star Wars Galaxies where there was no sense of land ownership, but like you could put down like a player built city. And then people would gatekeep It's like it's my dungeon now you got to pay a toll. Right. And, um, So, um, some games that I think could benefit from this, it's more like you should, you could benefit from recognizing that you already have this system in your Mm. game, even if you didn't intend to like, um, and so an example is like any game where you have, um, um, and, and so, like, rather than, like, point out a specific one, I would say, like, most MMOs are going to have hidden land economies in them, whether they realize yeah, it like or not. Yeah, like the
1: server dynamic, like WoW servers, right? Like Tychondrius right. or Area 4052, right? And the
3: ways you're able to exert control, soft or hard, over certain locations, right? You know, through your your organizations, your guilds, your sort of things. Like, you know, something as simple as, like, basically, my guild is always hunting in here and the monsters spawn at this rate. So if you want access to the monsters, you effectively have to be part of our guild. You know what I mean? We've essentially asserted control over that like that little hunting zone.
2: Hmm. I, I could tell you that, you know, essentially uh, the Web 2 games that 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 used land very good in terms of, you know, systems and game design are 4X games, specifically the ones on mobile, like Game of War, Rise of Kingdoms, things like that. They utilize land very good. Like there is... Uh, you know a uh, sense of discovery there is uh, uh, some some tangible uh, benefits to a specific place on the map and if 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 i were to say what would be a good experiment on land using like that type of gameplay i would love to see escape from tarkov utilizing some persistency with land i think that that could either turn out to be amazing or extremely bad so, but I would really want to see <laughs> <laughs> to see that and how it, how it works out.
1: Interesting. So you mean like the when you when you dive and, and those specific plots being places that you then own and control or fight for territory over? Is that yeah, how you're so, kind of
2: seeing it? Uh, so the, what what happened now in Escape uh, from Tarkov is that you would queue up and then they would drop you in a, in a lobby. And then you know exactly what this lobby is. It's like a predefined map that is small. And then you go there and then you extract and you go back to your headquarter. So what happens sure. if you merge your headquarter towards a map? And then there is always a sense of discovery. There's always risk, uh, risk factor going on. You know, uh, it would need a lot of stuff to, to, to polish out the experience to make sure, you know, the rough edges are, are, are polished, whatnot. But I think there is some, some areas there to explore.
3: Yeah, awesome. There was a series of private Minecraft servers that I forget exactly what they're called, but they were very like heavily modded, like um, economics-oriented Minecraft um, servers. And and the 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 maintainers like got in touch with me after I started writing these things, and they said like, "Be really interesting to like put some of these ideas to use because we didn't realize that we had this locational-based economy." Right. We had land speculators. We had land barons who would like exclude people from land and basically like extract value from the actual laborers who are playing the game. And so it would be interesting to kind of, you know, go if we were to do it again, like go back in and like recognize this problem and then like do a 2.0 version to kind of solve it. Um, I never followed up and like found out like if they ever did
1: it, but it, it sounded interesting to me. Fascinating. Well, thank you guys for for hopping on today, and thank you guys for your kind of bold and uh, crazy predictions about which games would benefit from land economies. I know that I've learned a lot throughout this entire discussion about. Um, we never talked about the concept of Georgism, but essentially the taxes thing. Yeah, um land, taxes, value tax would fix this, oceans, land value taxes, auctions, um, land value taxes, speculation, scarcity, um, kind of like what what's the best way to sort of think about and model and have a land economy is rotating adjacent to maybe another main economy. Um, so thank you guys for your insights. There was a lot to talk about. Um, and thank you for our, to our listeners. We'll be back next week. Um, but until next time, friends, uh, feel free to hit me up at alexandranovic.co. At if you ever had any questions, comments, or dare say concerns. Um, for Khalid and Lars, if people want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch?
3: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Larcy Prime and my books at landisabigdeal.com
2: Yeah, com. so for, for me, you, you can you can hit me up on Twitter, uh, it's KL Rumi underscore. Uh, and I'm also available on LinkedIn, uh, Khaled Rumi.
1: Amazing. All right, with that, we are out and uh, see you guys next time.